back. Welcome back. We need to talk fam. This is season seven of We Need to Talk. Now, when I thought about who I wanted to start season seven of We Need to Talk with, there was really only one person that I could think of. And I cannot tell you how blessed I feel to have had this conversation. I was lucky enough to sit down with the incomparable Tyler Merritt. His heart his passion, his faith journey, his views on race, his approach to grace, they all made me a better person after our conversation. It was a conversation filled with love, with intellect, and a whole lot of laughter. And we tackled so many topics in our chat that there was no way I could condense it into just one episode. So to start off season seven of We Need to Talk, here is part one of my deeply moving talk with Tyler Mayer. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you got something to say that is on your mind. We need to talk, we need to talk about it. You know just one conversation can change your life. We need to talk, we need to talk about it. We need to talk. Tyler Merritt, thank you so much for taking the time to be on We Need to Talk today. Melinda, what is up, girl? <laughs> I feel like I've known you yes. from social media. Yes. Like we are partners in crime, although we are not at all. Well, we're about <laughs> to be. We're about to be in this episode. I'm so excited to chat with you. Right? It's funny, though, because I feel like there are so many people that I have known on social media. We have aligned messages. We comment. We, we, we connect. And I've never, ever been face-to-face with them. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it also gets tricky when you write a book, right? Oh, I'm like, sure. When you put a book out, especially one that's like opened your whole soul up to the world, um, bestie complex, which is an actual thing, like happens. People finish your book and they're like, oh, we're best friends now. Oh my god! Like I'll have people reach out to me on social media and be like, how's your mom? And I'm like, I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, she's good, but I, who? I, who's asking? That's you know. so funny. Oh, I'm sure that that's the case with you because you've built this really, really beautiful community on social media. And I, and I love what you're doing with the Tyler Merritt Project. And for those that don't know you that are listening, you really came to notoriety with your viral video before you call the cops that you released in 2020. Yeah. And it was this beautiful declaration of just humanizing your existence as a black man. It was specifically for people that may view you as a threat. And I loved the message in that video so much. And I think it's so important. But I also unfortunately think that it's going to continue to be a necessary piece of art. Yeah, I don't the idea of me working myself out of a job, I just don't think is a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't, Yeah. I, I just, I, I just don't know if there's ever going to be a place where, you know, we're going to wake up one day as black people and be like, everything is just cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's not to sound like all aggressive about the idea or concept, but that's just like a true and honest reality. And that there was a time period, and this sounds really negative. There was a time period where I was like, so how long is it going to be before some other black nonsense goes down? Mm. Like how, like we can put it on a timer, right? Where we can go, okay, another black man or woman's going to be killed or um, somebody's going to do something absolutely ridiculous to a black person. And there's going to be no kind of consequence for that. And it became kind of just like a kicker. Um, for that to happen like just oh, just like a ticker like oh yeah we'll just see how long this takes yeah. sadly yeah. you know and I, 
I, I, not to sound all negative about it, but it's just, sometimes it feels like that. You're just kind of waiting around for the next shoe to drop. Absolutely. We get to that point. We've kind of become desensitized to it a little bit. Like it's a part of our normal, normal culture. And that is heartbreaking. But I think one of the things I do love about the black community is that no matter what happens, we do always find a way to rise above it. But it does get exhausting having to always rise above it, you know? Right. I was telling somebody not too long ago, like, I, I just, I just don't have the privilege not to have hope. Mm. You know, mm. I just like, there's too much stuff going on Yeah, that I have to overcome every day and wake up and go, I just have to get past this. What am I going to do? Just go, no, I'm just going to stop. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause there's, you know, I like the idea that we're reaching for a goal and I like, I, I love the idea of Martin Luther King talking about, I have a dream that we will get to this place. Um, I feel like we're making progress. 100% I do. For like, sure. I'm not, I'm not that dude that feels like we're just stuck. I feel like we're making progress, but I, I, I don't have the, the, the ability to just give up like most people. Yeah. Do, I think. Yeah. And I think that that mindset is very evident in the book that you have out called I Take My Coffee Black. And in reading it, God, there was just so many things. I was like writing all these notes. I was like, yep, yep, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And it's such a vulnerable book. It's such an authentic book. And the honesty is just, the storytelling was just so heartfelt. And you felt like you were just truly having a conversation no matter who the reader was. And that's what did I you, loved Did you do it. the hard copy or did you do the audio book? I have... This hard copy right here. <laughs> All right. I see. Yes, I, I'm a reader. I love I love reading. I love reading. Um, I haven't gotten into the audiobook thing yet, which is actually funny because I do audiobooks. Like I record them for people. I hope so, because your voice is great. <laughs> oh, but I'm gonna tell I'm just gonna tell you. I'm gonna I'm, let me tell you about about my audiobook specifically. Um but when I signed with my publishing, when I signed my publishing deal, I had like two rules, and one of those was um I need to be able to cuss as much as I want. <laughs> in my book because I cuss a lot and two I have to read the audio yeah and then when I got to it they just let me do whatever I want Love on it. it so they I mean it was it's a it's a whole experience in itself and people who have listened to the audiobook that are listening to this right now are like screaming like I know I know because it's just it's it's nothing it's like nothing you ever do we have sound effects on oh, it awesome. Jimmy Kimmel's on it my parents make appearance on it it's just it's just a good time you did a whole like radio show a whole radio play it, it, it feels it feels like a radio show slash um podcast slash audiobook oh like it's just God. a community I might thing. have to do yeah. that too then to get my second dose you'll, of you'll it. dig it and also I, I added more humor into it and I laugh at myself sometimes because I, because, because you know how audiobooks are, yeah. right? And yeah. in my case, I was reading, it had been a while since I had read my audiobook, since I read my book. So I'm in the booth reading it and I'm laughing at some of the things, like I'm genuinely going, I can't believe someone let me put this in a book. <laughs> like somebody lets me talk about like new edition, um, Bon Jovi, NWA, and like, musicals yes. all in the same like it. three paragraphs but that's what made you know? it so relatable and that's why i loved it i loved it and I love that. it's 
I really hope that whoever's listening, if you haven't picked up the book or the audiobook, because now I'm about to go get that as well, please do. And we're going to get into more of the book in a little bit. But one of the things in reading it, I really wanted to get your opinion on, because I think this is something that specifically the black community, but people of color struggle with as well. So I wanted to know what your views on respectability politics are. And you can define that term however you want to, however you use it. But do you feel that it's more of, you know, hey, you got to play the game sometimes in order to change the game? Or should we just be able to be who we are? Because there are, you know, as you've said before, black people are not monolithic and we just try not to appease anybody. There are different levels of who we are as a community. What are your views on that? So I think, should we be able to be just who we are? The simple answer is, is yes. 100%, no questions asked, period. We should just be able to be who we are. Um, but, um, specifically when it comes to politics, um, and respectability politics can take a lot of different forms and has like in the LGBTQ community, um, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot, there's a lot of ways in which we shape ourselves to try to have forward movement. Um, and I hate to say this because I just... I, I don't like it even coming out of my mouth, but sometimes I feel it's necessary to have adjustments as to just who we are as people. Mm. Like if I'm gonna show up and speak on the Senate floor, I should probably just not wear a hoodie. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I wear a hoodie every day yeah. of my life all the time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's just me, yeah. right? That's who I am. That's, but um, I think there's a place to, to consider um, what are the steps that we have to take? I don't wanna say sometimes we have to make ourselves less because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying specifically when it comes to the United States on which we live in, we have to play the game a little bit. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, and this is gonna be a little bit controversial. I, I think when it comes to I want to talk very specifically politically for a minute. I'm going to talk red and blue, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes the reason why Democrats don't move forward the way that they do um, is because Republicans have learned how to play the game in a very, very, like they're all, they, they've all bought in. Absolutely. Melinda, they've all bought in. Like on a Monday morning, something bad, can, I'm just going to make a situation up. On Monday morning, um, Kentucky decided that they don't want to illegalize marijuana. And the main point point of why they don't want to is because marijuana is bad for kids. By the end of the day, every Republican from Republican from here to whatever are saying the same phrase. Marijuana is bad for kids. (laughs) Right. And Democrats oftentimes will find themselves being like, I'm just going to step to the mic and say how I feel. I'm going to be incredibly passionate about this specific thing, which I love and which I think is great. But the way the United States is structured, um, sometimes you got to position things to get things done. Yeah. And and again, I told you, it hurts even coming out of my mouth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I would like to be able to say, nah, we need to be able to just step up, be who we are, fight the power, blah, 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 blah. But in the United States, if you actually want to get things done, there's a hustle involved in that. Yeah. And sometimes that hustle is releasing some of those things that um, would maybe just come naturally to us. Does that make it any sense? Because I think if your listeners, 
if your listeners don't understand the idea of 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 this meaning of that question um the the answer can maybe be a little bit confusing but i hope i've kind of explained no you absolutely did and i i'm definitely aligned with what you're saying because i i'm definitely in the camp of if you want to make a change you have to go in play the game and then you know be the change right but i will say when it comes to specifically politics we're talking about red and blue right Mm -hmm. it's i struggle with the democrats because in 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 a good way because I love that they're open to so much diversity and so many different uh, views, different thoughts. And it, it's very inclusive. Sure. But because of how inclusive they are, it can get very, very messy. And nobody knows what the general messaging is. Now, like you said, you are absolutely correct. Something happens in Kentucky, alas, is going to be on board by noon. <laughs> like that's just, <laughs> right. that is 100% how the Republicans roll. And that's, kind of terrifying also because there's yeah there's nothing you can do to change that there's the the thing though that's a hustle that's a planned well rehearsed thing and that's not accidental that is a how do we immediately get everybody on the same page despite our own personal feelings on things and sometimes that can be very 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 aggravating and you're mm-hmm. and you're completely right. This is why I love to be a part of things. Well, you can look over and go. There's AOC over here. There's Joe Biden over here. There's Kamala over here. There's there's different ideas, concepts, and ways that we move throughout the world. But if you don't end up landing on the same page when it comes to like voting on things, <laughs> you know, um, and. And then once you get your foot in the door, really trying to maneuver things around, like that's a strategy. And mm-hmm. I think black people have done a really good job of doing that over the years. Um, and, and I don't think it's just, obviously it's not just a black people thing, uh, but I do right. think it's, it's such a complicated thing. Cause I'm also the same guy that will scream from the streets, like be who you are, you know, don't change for anybody. Like I'm that guy, 100%. But then there is definitely an, uh, like an asterisk next to that, you know? Yeah. I think one of the hardest things that I've had to navigate in, in my life, and I'm sure, and even in, in reading your book, and this is, I think, even one of the first examples that you, that you gave in your book, but trying to go down that checklist of making sure how I present myself makes other people comfortable so that they not only hear what I'm saying, but are are willing to also engage with me. And I think that that comes into kind of allowing your blackness to earn somebody else's empathy. And that is something that I have difficulty with, but I also know that it falls in line with that playing the game in order to change the game. For me, it's a it's an understanding of the fact that not everybody has had the same amount of experience, like life experience and proximity to other people as I have. Yeah. That's not a pass. Let me be very clear. That's not a pass. And in in the first chapter of my book, I talk about going through the stages of grief, right? And Mm -hmm. I talk about the first one and I'm just trying to reason myself out. And I'm just like, you know, this white person has a problem with me because they don't have a lot of black people in their lives. So like, they don't have somebody that looks like me in their lives. And if they did, then maybe they'd have a better understanding. And I immediately changed to anger. And I'm like, no, that's, 
you know, that's horrible. And that's, it shouldn't be that way, but there's a truth to that piece, right? There's a truth to that piece where, um, be it the media, be it, um, you know, racial uh, issues that you've maybe grown up with racist issues that you've grown up with that people can perceive who you are and and bring their own judgments and their own ideas of things. And it is not my responsibility. Let me be very, very clear. It's not my responsibility to change myself to suit the fact that you don't have any black friends, but what I, what I have chosen to do in the midst of the stuff that I do. And I think this is really important because I say this all the time. I tell people it is not my job. It is not our job as black people to humanize ourselves for anybody. It's not. And I'm a firm believer in that, like a firm believer, but me, Tyler, personally, because of the things that I've seen in my life, the things that I talk about and I walk through my book, I have this weird empathy piece and trust me, it's aggravating to mostly everybody in my life. Cause I'm that dude that's so empathetic to everything that I, I, I begin to think like, okay, maybe this person doesn't, what, what can I do to, to position myself to make this a better situation for this person that may not have the same kind of um, experiences that I do. Mm-hmm. And though I don't think it's all of our jobs, sometimes I, I, I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't, I personally don't mind doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think in, I, I fall in that as well. I think that that comes from your background as a Christian, because mm. I know that that comes from my background as a Christian. And I know that as difficult as it is, I more often than not do try to show grace to those types of people. And in your experience, how and when do you choose to show grace, especially when it is t- in times of racial tension? Because I know it can be difficult. And I, I imagine, given the following that you've built, that you don't always get nice comments. I'm sure you don't, right? There's no way you do. <laughs> There's just no way. And if you did, I'd be like, mm, I don't know about that, Tyler. So we, we all do, especially when we're loud and proud and unapologetically Black specifically, mm-hmm. we're really going to get that pushback. But I really do try to show grace. And I, I, I will tell you, I have been surprised the amount of times that I've actually been successful with people introducing them to themselves, getting them to take a step back and realize, oh, why am I coming for this woman? Like, I don't know her. I just saw a blue Mm -hmm. check next to her name and thought, okay, I'm going to attack her right now. You know, so how and when do you choose to show grace? And is it easy for you? Okay. (laughs) I I, Let us not, I I don't want to, I don't want to forget the question you just asked. So I want, but I want to make a comment first. Okay. okay? Which has to do with you. And it's a question for you. Okay. So let remind have the wording of that question perfect so I can come back to it. I got you. But I'm curious for you. Something that I love that you do on social media is, and I think where we're where we kind of echo each other is you have no issues going on social media, popping up and being like, hey folks, let me tell you what's up. Like let me lay this down for you. Let me tell you what's up. And what I also love is you're pretty active. You're like me. Like um I'm I'm a politics head. So I'm like continually paying attention to what's going on in the world. And so if something crazy in the world happens, I can go on and see you on social media and be like, I know you got a thought and it makes me happy. Right. Like I'm like, good. And oftentimes I just have to get things out. Right. And oftentimes because of our, our skills and our abilities, we're able to get things out into the world with our words in ways that other people can't. So we end up communicating thoughts that other people just don't know what to say. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's also the, I feel like the, the reason why we feel like we need to do that. But my question for you is, is do you have people, cause I, you have to get haters and you have to get, I, and listen, if people that do not have a, if you have a following of more than I would say 500 people, right. And, and over that five, and that's a, that's a smaller number, you know, people are probably thinking about 500, but like, if you have any sort of following that has more people in it than outside of your immediate grouping, like Mm -hmm. that aren't your immediate people, you're going to have people that say things to you, like they know you, but they don't. (laughs) And if you're like us, where we put content out in the world, that gets pretty popular or shared quickly. You're going to have, you know, third, fourth, fifth, groups of people that have nothing to do with you who want to come directly to you and comment specifically on something that you say. My question to you is, is do you have people around you that um, monitor things for you or try to protect you from kind of the hater aid? Or do you monitor all of that all on your own? I monitor it all on my own. And <laughs> my husband is so against it. <laughs> Yeah. He's just like, uh, how do you have time to engage like you? And he and I do it. I do it very gracefully. Sometimes people make me snap. I'm not going to lie. I'm not perfect. God's still working on me. But sometimes I snap. Right. But most times I do try to be very gracious. But no, I I haven't had anybody monitor that for me. That's also because I'm a control freak. Um, I get that. I get that. I'll, I'll get there eventually, I'm sure. But yeah, it's really just me and me alone at this point. Well, let me like encourage you. And I'm not trying to come at you like I know better than you do or anything like that, though I'm considerably older than you, I feel like. Uh, I, I just want to encourage you and maybe like give my two cents on this. Listen, especially as Black women, I thought I had it hard. I did, listen, especially when I'm like, faced up in the social justice where I thought I had it hard. And then my friend, Joy Reed, hmm. um, I started paying attention to stuff that she posts. And Melinda, when I tell you, she'll post, it doesn't matter what she posts. Almost the immediate reaction is something that is so hateful and so dark and so disrespecting to her as a person that like, I don't even go and look at her comments anymore. I don't comment anymore. Like Mm -hmm. I don't even comment. And she's my friend because I, the stuff that she, she's, that is there is so vile. Now she does an incredible job of having people around her to protect her peace. Mm. Um, I just want to encourage you and say the work that you're doing is radically important. The words that you're putting out in the world mean something. They mean something to me as a black man. Um, the amount of energy that it will take you to find somebody who really, really cares about you to just try to do a little bit of monitoring so that you don't have to see um, some words or, or, or that you don't even have to deal with, you know, some things are deleted before we even get to them. I would encourage you to get that into your life because I will say this, it may not affect us directly when we see hate, you know, written or spewed at us. It may not affect us in the moment, right? We, some of us, it does, but as you, as you continue to see that over and over mm-hmm. and over and over again, and you then have to go, okay, do I block this person? Do I, how do, do I try to have conversation with this person? And then you have the people too that like, 
will say some hateful stuff and it feels like they just want your attention. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's a different level of trolling, right? Like that's trolls are one thing, but then there's those people that actually follow you who may have a a thought that is a little, and you respond to them and you know, they're on the other, on the other side being like, Oh my gosh, like they, they they respond to me. Now I need to say something stupid back. You know what I'm saying? So all that to say, that's just me as like your brother being like, man, protect, protect your peace. Cause your work no, is for is, sure. Is for sure. I, I get that. And, and you are absolutely correct. And it is on the long to-do list of things to do for sure. But I, what I do try to remind myself, and this will lead back into the question that I originally asked you is that hurt people hurt people. Right. And I do try to keep that in mind when people are coming at me with vitriol and hate for no reason. So going yeah. back to the question that I asked you is how, and when do you choose to show grace? So one of the things that I, the, one of the reasons why I wrote, I take my coffee black in the way that I did, where when I get to the end of the book, <laughs> just so people know the last chapter, the, the penultimate chapter in my book is called, it's, it's a Hamilton reference. It's called, um, never going to be president now, AKA my husband found your pictures. <laughs> and that is exactly what it sounds like. Like it's, it's, it's bad. Like I basically go, let me tell you about a really bad, very like kind of shady moment of my life and who Mm -hmm. I am and some things that I did, but that's not the, that's not the only time in the book where I'm like, I kind of suck as a human, (laughs) you know, it's not the only time in the book where I'm like, I made bad decisions. Yeah. But also chapter seven of my book is called, I was doing perfectly fine. Then damn it. Here comes Jesus. Right. And I don't try to push Christianity on anybody in my book. In my life, I don't. But I got to say this, Melinda, and this is the truth. I live this thought every single second of my life. I do not deserve to be forgiven. I do not deserve Mm. to be given a second chance when I mess up. I do not deserve to... um, I don't deserve to be able to fall miserably and get back up and continue to try to change the world. But I believe in a God and I know not everybody does and that's okay. Of course, I, I, I believe in a God who continually looks at me and says, One of the reasons why you love me, Tyler, is because you can't understand me. Mm. One of the reasons why you love me so much is because I have a grace that goes way beyond your imagination. And when I think about that kind of grace, who am I not to give that to other people? Amen. And that's hard to explain to somebody who can't, who doesn't understand that. Like the amount of energy that I have to put, um, in my community to people that are like, Tyler, why are you, why haven't you blocked this person? Why are you communicating with this person? Why are you giving your energy or the thing that I love? I I, I love the best, which is as of recent of like, why do you feel you have to respect and or honor your oppressors? Like, I'm like, okay, no, this isn't about, (laughs) this isn't about me honoring or respecting my oppressors. Yeah. 
This is about a grace that I don't understand that's been given to me. And the only way I know how to grapple with all this grace is to give it back. Yeah. It's the only way. Yeah. Um, because Melinda, I shouldn't be here. And I don't mean that in a big spiritual sense. I just mean in general, like how I grew up in like, I, my, you know, my middle school was this like super gang infested school that like one or two decisions could have shifted my whole everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I look back now and there's not a day that I don't wake up Melinda that I'm not just like, I don't know what your plan is for me, God, but I'm going to keep walking in it. And thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you that I, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. And so when I have folks come at me in the million ways that they do, sure. Do I like want to wild out at first? 100%. But then I immediately flip to, okay, now if grace is given to me, I can give it to, to you. But let yeah. me be clear about that. That does not mean that we excuse people and let them run all over who we are or, or, or tear apart our peace. That's, Correct. that's different Correct. because I do believe that there are people in this world that just have dark hearts and could give zero F's about, um, change growth or anything. Mm -hmm. And I can get to you later. I can get to you later. Like, I don't have to have you in my life messing up my peace. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're willing to step to the plate, I'm willing to meet you there. I love that answer. I love it. And I love that because you have such a strong foundation and such a strong relationship with God that you're able to assess every situation through that lens. It's super important because I yeah. try my hardest. Again, sometimes we want to flip a table. Sometimes we want to say the wrong thing, <laughs> but we try to do the best that we possibly can. I do want to talk a little bit about your faith journey yeah. because for me, how I grew up, I grew up actually in a pretty progressive Christian household and I really wasn't, and I, I've talked about this a bunch on, on my show, but I really wasn't exposed to evangelicalism or conservative Christianity until I went to college in Azusa Pacific University. So a lot of my stances on social justice and, and the LGBTQ community and abortion and so on and so forth, those views were already pretty much ingrained in me, the progressive views from an early age, specifically because of my mom. My dad really wasn't a church person, and um, but my mom really was always very, very liberal. So for you, what was your faith journey like for you to end up in this area of more, of being more progressive and, and having sure. the stances that you do on social justice and all that comes with it? Yeah, I, I, well, I'll try to make this simple because this could be a really long answer, but... Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian, uh, no, I, I grew up in a Christian home, quote unquote, meaning like my mom is from the South and she went to church because that's what people do, right? Did, right? <laughs> and my mom loves the Jesus, but she, I was, she was never forcibly on to me of like, you know, I think the most force she ever gave me was like, learn the Lord's prayer. I remember her very specifically sitting me down and going, do you know the Lord's prayer? And me going, no. And she was like, you need to sit over here and memorize it. <laughs> And come back to me when you have it. I was like, okay. Like, that's probably the only, like, very strict, like, churchy thing I remember growing up. Yeah. But when I got older and I got into high school and I had my own personal experience with God, um, I was just talking uh, to, to a friend about this. 
I told them that in the midst of everything that I've been through, with all the drama that I've been through, with the way that I've seen Christians, I, I, I say this a lot, like a lot of people do, like, I love Jesus, but I don't always like his followers. Like, <laughs> I've watched all of that stuff happen. But what keeps me still, the, the comment that I said to them was, I can't believe that after all these years, I still claim to be a follower of Jesus. <laughs> like, I just can't believe it, you know? But yeah. then I also made the comment of what happened to me in high school, the experience that I had was very, very real. Mm. And almost immediately following that experience, I went into a very legalistic, not understanding God was like people gave me really bad intel. You know what I mean? From like youth pastors and just other youth kids. And, and I don't think they had bad intention. They were just, you know, passing on the things that they learned. And because I was in high school, I basically was like, Oh, so this is how we're supposed to Jesus. This is how you Jesus. Right. And then I went to college. I went to Bethany, which was, was a sister school, Bazooza Pacific. And I got there and suddenly faith began to be a little bit nuanced, you know, like I I learned that there were still, of course, these like super kind of legalistic individuals, but there were also these people I talk about in my book, how I had given up all like secular music, secular. And if you have no idea what that means, it means like not godly music. So I threw out all this music, you know, in high school, which I never understood. I'm going to say, because so many of my friends were like only listening to, like a uh, gather vocal band and I was oh, over geez. here jamming to sync, And I'm like, what? <laughs> what right. This? But yeah. You, it, culturally, right. Or you have a speaker come along at a convention or something and be like, do you really love God? If you really love God, you will get rid of this, you know, mm-hmm. and you, you find yourself trying to get rid of every single thing to like purge yourself to show how much God you love, you know, and yeah. which is just ridiculous. Yeah. It's just asinine. And yeah. I'll never forget. I get to college and like the, one of the first days I'm there, this like senior guy named Scott, I walk into his room and he has a picture of like ice cube or something on his wall. And I'm like, uh, um, do, uh, do, do we, you know, Jesus doesn't like that. And the dude's like, where did you hear this from? <laughs> and I was like, everybody, that's what they say. And he's like, yeah, bro. Um, I'm gonna need you to get right. You know what I mean? So yeah. then I start to go through college and start to shift a little bit. And then I just live life. Right. Mm-hmm. And then in the living of life with my ups and downs and growing and shaping and it falls back to that grace and love category where I just don't want to be a part of a faith that I understand fully. Mm -hmm. So anytime that I have somebody who goes, this is who God is. And this is, this is exactly what God is saying. And this is exactly who God is. I feel like, yo, homie, if you believe in this heaven that you're talking about, you're probably gonna be real surprised who's there when you get there. Hmm. Yeah. It's Jesus that we talked about spend most of his adult life fighting against church people. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, Jesus yes. got old and went into ministry and was like, okay, the first thing we need to handle is all these church folks. Yes. And doing things that people just kept going. You can't do this because the law says this. And he had to keep going, but I'm God. <laughs> I can do what I want yeah. because now this is laced in love, in grace, and in something that you will never be able to earthly understand. And I feel like I'm getting way too spiritual by talking about all that. No, I love it. Don't typically, but like, but um, that's where I live at. Linda. Like I I live in that space. I live in the space of um, now that I'm 
have seen some things. People call it liberal or more progressive in my faith. I just call it being able to understand love on a greater level now. Yeah. That's yeah. that's it to me. That's yeah, that, that's it to me. I um I care less about anything else outside of am I loving you well? That's it. It really is period. that simple. And I don't know how it has gotten so difficult and convoluted over the well I do know but right. <laughs> it's frustrating for me because god we're so similar it, it, for me it really just is like I'm all about Jesus's stance of like loving your neighbor as you love yourself point blank period that's what it is and if that's not what is leading you in your faith and your journey and in you labeling yourself as a Christian then what are you about so I love I think- that that's how you approach it And I think it's really easy for us to lock into, especially if you grow up a certain way to lock into rules, right? Like, I'm. let me, the thing that we always hear, you know, you hear it as much as I do. We can say, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And I use this example all the time. Like somebody came to Jesus and said, what is the most important thing? And he could have said a million things, (laughs) a million things. And the answer was love, love God and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Mm-hmm. everything else will figure itself out. Yeah. With that though, it's very easy for people, which we hear all the time to go, well, what does love mean? Love means that you want the best for that person. Or <laughs> I have a lesbian friend of mine who was a pastor for years and she came out, finally came out. She, she was straight married and, you know, has been a lesbian all her life, but she finally was like, I have to like, kind of live my truth here. Mm-hmm. And she goes, Tyler, the millions of times that I have said, to people. Um, God wants the best for you. And the best is not this thing. (laughs) And how I use that terminology to justify what God's love is, which then gave no um, honor or recognition or seeing the person in whom I was talking to. Yeah. When in the word, everything about who Jesus was, was about looking at a person and talking about who they were in front of, of them and, and looking and seeing them. And I do think if we have the ability to see people, Melinda, like really see people and then choose to love them and apply that grace to us, a grace that we don't understand, then we, then we have a key of kind of changing the world a little bit. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, just continuing this conversation about faith, and one of the things that you you talk about in your book that I've talked about many times um, and that I resonate with has been your experience with the church in general, but how much of a role do you think that specifically white evangelical churches play in upholding, you know, white supremacist ideals and white supremacy in this country. And how would you personally like to see us start to dismantle that? Because I think the church has a huge responsibility to be at the forefront of social justice. But unfortunately, in this country, that's just not the case whatsoever. Social justice is like a bad, dirty word to so many people in church communities. Sir, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I love the fact that you were like, this is going to be 30 minutes. Like, I'm like, girl, we have, I've seen you on the internet way too much to just talk to you for like 15 minutes and call it a day. Okay. Okay. Couple of things, a couple of things. Um, 
I want to talk about kind of three sections for a second, because this is super like I, I have all kinds of thoughts on this very specifically. So first, I want to talk about the black church. Okay, what a lot of of white evangelical Christians don't understand is that when you are at your white evangelical church, and I go to a church that's mostly white, like I go to a church called Cross Point. So mm -hmm. hear me, I'm not talking like I don't like I don't have some experience of knowing or seeing. When something, and so let's take George Floyd, for instance, which impacted the world in such a strong way. You had pastors, not all, but a handful of pastors that were going, guys, maybe we should start to devote every fourth Sunday to social justice, or maybe we need to get a Wednesday night social justice committee and really kind of press our, our church into that. Or maybe we should take five minutes out of every Sunday morning and try to address social justice, especially while the climate is high. Now, that's coming from all the good white evangelical churches. That's right. churches that are having like a really good, solid idea of what they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. But what most white churches don't understand is in the black church, Sunday morning is the social justice committee. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. follow me? Like yeah. at yeah. the black church, there's not a divide between social justice and loving Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's no separation there. The black church for as much as they have, have done some pretty horrible things as far as like LGBTQ goes and this, that, and the other. And I, I will stand by this from now until the cows come home. There is not a perfect church out there. I am so impressed that anybody still goes to church period <laughs> right. like at all, you know? Um, and I ain't mad at you if you don't. Right. But what the black church has done well is yeah. the black church has always been a refuge for social justice with no question, because that is where you, that is where you come. If you're going to come there and love Jesus, social justice is mixed into the sauce. So that's the first thing that I think um, white evangelicals don't necessarily understand or can't grasp the concept of. Yeah. Now, two, I think one of the reasons why they don't understand that concept is because of money. And I mean this respectfully. Um, money matters, right? Yeah. So let's say that you are a pastor who is listening to God, praying every single day. You are, you on a Tuesday morning, wake up, you can go to your six o'clock a.m. prayer meeting and God meets you in that room and you go oh my God, social justice needs to be every Sunday, every moment. These are two things that are entwined and you have a literal come to Jesus moment and go, I know exactly what I need to do. The heart of what, it, of what you need to do and what is right is very different than what you end up saying on Sunday morning because you have Scotty in the middle row there who has been a giver to your tithing, to your church for 20 years and gives 20% of your church income comes out of Scotty's wallet. And that, you know, if you say black lives matter, he will stop writing checks. Mm. Suddenly the weight of that's come to Jesus moment that you had a white as a white pastor suddenly becomes, you have to begin to ask the question of, is the cost worth it for you? <laughs> and for most white evangelical churches, the cost is not worth it. Correct. And, that, and that's not even me being insulted. That's just me going, that's, that's a, you are trying to run a business and you have to weigh to yourself, is my business worth my moral awakening? And for most churches, 
It's just not. They'll mm-hmm. do just enough to 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 get by. They'll get they'll do just enough that they'll you know they'll get fifteen emails from their most awake white people in their church. And so they decide to put together a two minute video segment on social justice and they're able to go, but you saw what we did on the third Sunday of February. Right. So, so first you have the black church that social justice is on Sunday morning. Second, you have the white church who, forgive me when I'm saying white church, but you have kind of a white evangelical white. Like those type of churches are predominantly white. Right. Who have yet to evaluate the cost, right? Then you have the third branch, which I feel is, um, I think nowadays, especially in this time period, we are more effective as Christians. I say, come to my church. But it's more effective to say, hey, to a neighbor, not, will you come to church with me on Sunday? That may not work. But what you can say to your neighbor, which they will get and which they'll understand if they're not a believer is go, hey, do you want to go serve with me this weekend? Like some folks from my church are going to go help clean up this park in the middle of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They're like, hell yeah, I'll go serve with you right now. Right? Yeah. So in this third tier, non-believers understand service. They understand social justice. They understand what doing what's right. And they can't understand how white evangelical churches don't get it. Yeah. So what happens is, and I said this on a podcast once at a mostly white church and like, you would have thought that I like burned the place down. Christianity becomes the word. Christianity starts to become synonymous with the word racism. Mm-hmm. They start to become the same thing. Yes. So when people hear Christian, they automatically think white and they think racist. Correct. When in reality, that's completely eliminating black people that are followers of Christ and eliminating the service that we do also as Christians and as white people do. And it makes me feel so sad when I hear my white friends go, I love this church that I've gone to all my life, but I just don't even like to tell people I go there. Like, that's just not the, that's not the faith we should live. And also in that third group of people is you have a lot of people who've just given up on church in general. And and I can't even be mad about it. The conversation only gets better from here. So make sure you tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Tyler Merritt. And don't forget to subscribe to We Need to Talk. We need to talk.